This is Roodkapje Radio, de podcast on art, music, research, hamburgers and all else that moves young creatives through the world. Directly inspired by the hamburger community of art residents, Jill Baldwin, Danielle Hogendorn, Lavinia Xauza, Erik Peters and Irie Zamblay. And our Hamburg community of live programmers, Louisa Teigman, Arjuna Vlasblom, Mitchell Quits, Ruta Genita and Lodewijk van Dijk. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Roodkapje Radio. We're here today in Time is the New Space, and also this podcast is hosted by Time is the New Space. From out my window, I see the beautiful gray disaster that I call my mother city. And uh, the weather is great, and there's also a trash truck coming by, so uh, <laughs> the world is lovely today. Uh, but without further ado, uh, we're talking about the exhibition from then to here from artist Erik Peters, who was the Hamburger Community Artist in Residence at Roodkapje for this year. And uh, with all the other guests, we have a lot of guests here today, uh, namely Erik Peters, but then also Liminal Vision uh, with Amelia and Victor, Luisa Teichman, Federico Pony, Camilo Garcia and Kumurai Makumbe. And uh, that's to no, su- no one's surprise, actually, because uh, this exhibition was built on the concept of collaborative world building. And all these guests had an important part in this exhibition. Uh, let me see. Um, the exhibition from then to here was built upon the practice of collaborative world building and proposes a collective quest of sense making and imagination through the works of affirmative artists. It explored the plurality of future narratives. Erik, <laughs> that sounds beautiful. Sounds kind of sexy, right? It sounds super sexy, yeah. And uh, what I remember from the text on the website, it was also called Your First Solo Exhibition. Yet here we are with seven other people. <laughs> <laughs> Explain yourself. Yeah, that's a good one. I think that's something that uh, a lot of people were kind of confused with as well. Um, yeah, I think for me, uh, working around topics of futurity and collaborative world building and such, it kind of felt a bit, it felt necessary to not only present my own works, but kind of look at other people that inspire me uh, and present other perspectives as well besides my own and kind of not present them as isolated works, but really try to build one like scenario altogether. And I think in that case, maybe the, the exhibition space is just one world that we've all built together. Is, is that what collaborative world building is about? I think it is for me, in a sense, trying to create versions of realities that you would like to exist or you would not like to exist. Um, and for that, for me, it is important that there are perspectives present that are not just my own and that those perspectives can also contrast each other. These kind of contradicting truths. I think mm. that's really interesting. And is that something you've done before? Is uh, What does the rest of your practice look like? Yeah, it looks like a lot. <laughs> 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 yeah, so I think in my practice, I work with a lot of different materials, so audiovisual to uh, installations to more graphical works. Uh, but I think this this practice of collaborative world building always kind of comes is like is a recurring topic or maybe even like a working method for me. 
uh, I just like collaborating with people and, and as I mentioned before I think it's part of who I think is that the trash truck <laughs> not anymore no <laughs> another um, disaster in a beautiful <laughs> city yeah so it's um, it is something that that's reoccurring in my practice a lot I think yes and, but then also the, like the, the whole idea of collaborative world building what I thought was really interesting in your exhibition as well is that y you almost use it as a, as a as a form of medium um, and, and I was wondering is that something you've started to explore during your residency in Rotkapje or is that something that uh, came from a long way for example? Mm, I think it's something that has always kind of been present in my work but I think especially for this exhibition it's been an interesting process because you're at the same time kind of developing new work but then you're also I guess curating other works and then yeah. at the same time alongside of those all together kind of try to create a context for those works to exist alongside each other and I think in that sense it's been a really interesting project as a whole not to just present new work in an exhibition space but to create really shape the exhibition space in that way yeah you, you also designed the space like that can you take us through like if I would walk into the expo right now, what would I see? Um, you would start seeing a barrier of these. I never know the word for these, like these flaps, these uh, transparent. Yeah, the, the things you have strips. at slaughterhouses <laughs> and uh, yeah, <laughs> those so plastic. Uh, oh, like yeah. a plastic curtain, right? Yeah, I guess kind of yeah. like that, um, which kind of creates an entrance to the exhibition space mm -hmm. so it divides the rest of the, the building to kind of the, the tiny world um, it has symbols projected on it and once you come in you see a number of different works that are all chained up so all the screens and all the pieces in the exhibition space are connected through chains and I'm holding uh, an orange acrylic uh, perspex mm -hmm that holds that's kind of functions as the map for this world so it has all the descriptions of the works instead of the descriptions of the works being in the works or alongside the works um, I see a really big glowing table in the middle of the space uh, and I see different kinds of blue pillows on the floor with headphones <laughs> and in total there were five works in this exhibition yes yes and that's what we're going to talk about today we have uh, about 90 minutes and uh, we reserve some time for every work actually oh yeah yes and uh, we're going to dive further into the whole idea of um, <coughs> collaborative world building but also about futurity that's a word i've heard you use a lot <laughs> in the past few months uh, yeah can you also explain a little bit about futurity i think what uh, futurity means to me is everything that does not yet exist so everything kind of that comes right after now mm -hmm. to everything that's very far from now and futurity is something that exists by itself but it's also something that you can explore or that you can shape or that you can imagine and I think in that sense that's kind of the word I've started to use to describe this exhibition and the different works in the exhibition to prevent using words like utopia or dystopia in a sense of already describing what the feeling or the goal of these works are or kind of the tone of voice and more 
explain that they're about something that exists just not right now or maybe it does but in a different like time and in a different space maybe different context yeah it it's everything that's a bit further from our everyday life than uh, our everyday life yeah. and i think that's kind of what futurity is to me and i think that's what what i explore with my work as well in, in all of these different ways and would you consider the futurities that were explored during your expo would you consider those utopias or dystopias or a, more of a neutral topia yeah i think as i kind of mentioned before uh, none of them are are real utopias or dystopias mm, they're just alternatives topias alternatopias <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that um yeah so um we're gonna talk about the works and you brought in a lot of amazing artists um i was wondering why did you choose them to work on your collaborative world yeah that's a question i also asked myself before um if it was like maybe necessary to really really expands on my research of like exploring other artists mm -hmm. and inviting them but in maybe repeat your answer yes yeah, so i think in in the reason why i i invited these artists to collaborate with is because i thought about the people around me that have inspired me with their work and kind of that have shaped my different versions of futurity as well and in that I have tried to look for how these can also coexist and how they kind of differ from each other. So I think each work in the space really gives, really explores um, their world in a very, very different way. And I think in that way they really add to each other. And that's why I invited these beautiful people. Sweet. Well, let's move on to the work that uh, focuses the most on speculation about the future. Uh, next to me are Liminal Vision, Amelia Tepres and Victor Eving. And um, the work that was in the exhibition was called Embodied Ambitopias. It was a film of 45 minutes-ish? Something like that. Something yeah. like that, yeah. And um, yeah, um, <laughs> no? <laughs> 25. 25, really? <laughs> It felt like, a, uh, yeah, it felt like a trip. It was super interesting. Uh, but I think there is a, a forty-five-minute version or something. Like we had yeah. something that was a bit longer, but that was maybe yeah. not this one. Yeah. So actually, it's uh, made of um, six, seven episodes, mm -hmm. and the thing that was at the exhibition is one combined cut. So it's a shortened mm -hmm. version. Combined cut. Can you describe all these cuts uh, to us? What yeah. do we see actually in this film? Yeah. Uh, well. Should we first introduce uh, ourselves or, or jump right away uh, to the... Whatever you like. I was going to ask those that question next, but uh, if you want to do it the other way around, it's fine by me. Okay. Yeah, maybe it's interesting yeah. to start like with the work first. Okay, let's uh, jump. So we see um, windows to three parallel worlds. Mm -hmm. and they are all driven by different value paradigms or ideas of a good life or a good society. And um, we... Uh, dived into those worlds through the perspective of the body. So they are kind of scenes in which different characters in those parallel worlds 
are asked to, to do different things or are um, approached uh, through um, uh, different AI mentors or, or some tutorials. Um, and we want to contrast the, the affective atmosphere and the, the, the way how the people are in their bodies and relate to each other through their bodies. Um, so it's a series of scenes or, or little windows in those worlds. It's a trip, like you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe to like expand on that a little bit. Um, we wanted to um, really dive into what these different alternatives, um, like what they are, like how you can sort of unpack uh, what the ideology is, what the world tells about itself, like how it's experienced by somebody that exists in that world. Um, and we try to sort of condense that, like how, how, how do you um, demonstrate something in, in this alternative um, speculative future um, in, in like an as concentrated as possible way. So this is how we came up with um, the idea of having a speculative interface. It's like something technological, like something very ideological, mainly like through uh, uh, the rhetoric of, uh, of a voiceover, like what somebody says and um, like a, a, like a mind-body exercise, something in the realm of, of either something meditative or like a, a kind of dance or like a, something inspired by yoga or um, uh, like a breathing uh, workshop. Yes. And, yeah. Before we expand further on that, maybe uh, indeed introduce yourself. Who is Liminal Vision? Liminal Vision is, uh, well, is us, is Emilia and me. Um, we still are in the process a little bit to define what it is. We, we call it at this point uh, a research collaboration. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, I am a historian of science and a, and a researcher and also a music writer and a musician. Um, so I come from, from music and academics. And Emilia, uh, yeah, you, you can tell a little bit about yourself and where you come from. And yeah, very briefly, my background is in design, uh, mm -hmm. originally industrial design and interface design and strategic design and all of these things. And I uh, shifted into film because I found it as a medium uh, to go to the core of what I was interested in. And it is how it feels to exist. It's the, the first person perspective and how it shifts and how you can create shifts yourself in your mind. Um, so I, that's how I came to the Netherlands to mm -hmm. study uh, at the temporary film department, uh, Shadow Channel in Sandberg. Um, so now my other side is uh, the film. Yeah, what, what was like such a good synergy is that there's a big overlap between, between design and, uh, and history in the sense of that something kind of evolves like a life form that, that evolves in different directions in different uh, circumstances. And um, this is how we approach Futurity, uh, we were talking about like to really see if, if we can make sense of the different directions in which ideologies and ideas and um, sort of the, 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 the seeds and germs of um, different possible types of societies that are already emerging. Like, what, what can you say about it? And how can you use um, really this sort of combination of um, film and, and, and writing and um, yeah, like a bit of philosophy, like how, how, how can you use those artistic methods to um, also communicate it to, uh, to more people? 
It's interesting that you use the word evolve because when I look at your practice, I mean, I've seen a lot of your films already, is, is that it's also kind of like an evolving universe you're creating. It's not so much about the films itself, not about the cuts, but it's, uh, I believe it's called Zoe Network. Yeah, mm-hmm. would you like to expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, should we uh, begin from like how it started or just to have a summary of the present? Um, Start from the beginning, yeah. I think it's interesting what you said about how it expands because when you create a world alone, uh, and that's also what Eric mentioned, it doesn't make so much sense. If you stop thinking about it, it stops to exist. And as soon as there's a second mind, even if you close your eyes, somebody else might be still there. So it kind of keeps it alive. And um, I really like that metaphor. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and in spring uh, 2019, um, I asked Victor to play a character in this. Uh, I had then uh, three worlds in mind uh, mm-hmm. that were contrasting in some way. And as soon as we met and we started to talk about it, it felt immediately that our minds kind of merged and then we started to build upon it. Mm-hmm. And then it was really um, a big event, at least to me, to have met uh, Eric and Pony and Luisa and Camilo uh, the, the following spring, because for the first time it felt that some other people actually saw those worlds and even if we closed our eyes, it would still exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's super nice. Yeah. Yeah, like actually, it may be interesting also to to uh, go into how how it emerged because like I can also tell it um, that Emilia uh, was studying at Sandberg uh, mm-hmm. Shadow Channel and made a um, first film, first work called Sonsaison, which was about uh, a specific type of technology, uh, like ambient sonsai technology. Um, Wha- and wha- then what is uh, sonsai technology? In very briefly, uh, or Sonsai Media, it's about mediating a sense of presence over distance, and it makes a big jump from, uh, or it's very different from screens, because you get the information as a peripheral information stream over time. So it's a, yeah, it's a different purpose uh, of presence and intimacy over distance. Yeah, for the listener, you, you kind of try to translate that by like putting this kind of new or like futuristic technology on the characters in your films uh, yeah I remember them choreographing <laughs> with lights uh, yeah it's kind of yeah, yeah. You, yeah you can use um, both light but also some some audio or like some other sort of moving elements um, that represent aspects of like a person that's being measured um, so that you know like a sort of somebody's energy somebody's character can be kind of displayed in a in a in a room yeah but yeah, so basically, um, the initial uh, idea was to to imagine like how this type of technology, being uh, a normal part of everyday life, would transform life uh, or like you know um, culture or the way like how how people form relationships, and then this this led to the realization that you cannot separate like a type of technology in and by itself from. The, the the driving uh, paradigm that 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 is um, that uses that technology in order to do something and maybe to say yeah. about the paradigm it's a combination of uh, different incentives it could be values this is that I truly believe is the best for all or the best for myself but it could be also an economic paradigm or anything that has the power to take it into another di- to a certain direction yeah so um, yeah okay like uh so this this was then um 
chosen to be uh, surveillance capitalism because that was also something that was uh, very much talked about at that in, time. In, uh, in Embodied Embotopias or in Sonsai Zone? In Sonsai Zone. Ah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then like Joey Network was um, sort of the, the follow-up on this. Like, um, is it possible to focus on these sort of drivers, these driving paradigms um, in and by themselves and to... Um, contrast different uh, different types of societies that all use maybe pretty much similar types of technology but but have very different um, ideologies and goals uh, backing them and carrying them mm-hmm. and steering their evolution yeah and something that I would love to add is that uh, the the notion of surveillance capitalism is no more really there w- because what Victor did when he joined it shifted it from a quite black and white uh, two dystopias, one utopia that I had in mind to a much more nuanced understanding of the different worlds and developing them in a more nuanced way. And um, now we have uh, a ludified form of surveillance capitalism that is not necessarily bad. Mm -hmm. And we have a post-humanist ecosystem design society in Netherlands and we have a network of decentralized micro-societies around the world that are founded on conscious movement. Um, so, like we discussed earlier, what Eric said, um, they are neither one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's maybe interesting then when you place different characters in them, depending on who you are and what is your position and your beliefs and so on, you will experience them very differently. And then we can start to compare our different positionalities. Yeah. Um, so that's maybe where the practice has moved towards. Yeah, and this is also like what uh, the word Ambitopia comes from. Like I, I found it in an article um, that was actually about like the necessity of uh, of utopian fiction um, to get out of the of the the blockage or the the, the trap of um, only being able to imagine uh, even more dystopian societies and worlds than uh, the one that we live in, um, and. Yeah, it, it's a word that was coined by uh, a science fiction writer and queer activist, uh, Red von John Barrett. Um, and it just fitted the kind of idea that, that I had for the, the, the kind of direction that I wanted to take the world building in. And um, it's really about uh, yeah, also raising questions, raising dilemmas that people can feel, that, that, that people can feel both you know, like two people sitting on a couch and like one people really being for this and somebody else like, she's like, wait, but no, this is super dystopian or like, I don't know how I feel about this. And to to evoke this type of um, kind of visceral questions. And yeah. yeah it, it reflects also much more on the present as well. We're also not currently living in either utopia or dystopia. So it's Yeah, really and that's interesting. a big yeah. thing. We even try to stop speaking almost about the... F- like uh, speculative fiction, because it's more interesting if you just look at them as alternative <laughs> presents. And mm. still in the current uh, world yeah. building, uh, we are working towards a, a feature-length project, uh, and we still place it in 2041, because it's still useful that since it's not yet there, it could happen, so it has this kind of um, possibility. But it's not the main point anymore to predict, it's more to juxtapose this value paradigms. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Still, I think it's very funny, like, if some predictions actually <laughs> come some, somewhat true, like, even much earlier than we did. And like actually, <laughs> Victor is really uh. great at, at uh, feeling uh, these emerging um, seeds 
very early mm -hmm. and it's crazy in the past two years so many things happen and now we even are like stopping to use certain words like the metaverse like we just removed it from the <laughs> descriptions because now it's completely in, a, in another yeah. <laughs> way it's been stolen yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so this is an alternative present what do you prefer living in our present or in your created present so in actually in the research umbrella we we have a, a matrix of 16 words and we just decided to focus on three mm -hmm. but this is a really hard question. Of so, originally, one of the worlds that is called Project Gecko uh, was um, when I first imagined it. Um, how how can democracy uh, survive? And democracy as a value of decentralized decision making. Um, and it got the the, the layer of uh, conscious movement or healing through reconnecting uh, through to trauma or to healing trauma through through the body. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I could relate a lot to. I would like to feel more embodied in my everyday life and have, uh, yeah. How about you, Victor? Um, yeah, it's interesting that uh, in order to, to do research, you also kind of connect to, to different developments and people that are actually building things. So, so I really got involved with, with people that are building these type of technologies, um, not only technologies, but forming communities and sort of the, the, the emergence of, uh, of kind of parallel networks. Um, and at the same time, it's, it's actually like everything is actually quite close together because um, uh, the, the, the people that are working in the development of, of decentralized democracy are like kind of the more idealistic side of people that are also using um, blockchain and new uh, developments like Holochain. Um, and the whole kind of ludification and, and the notion of like in-game currencies and sort of like um, gaming uh, to, to, to make a living is actually also using um, things like NFTs and stuff to, to create these type of economies. So they are like at this point still very interwoven in some way and that is that is very fascinating to see that like all of the different worlds that we are like that we uh, imagined are like also so close together and kind of cross hybridizing and um yeah i'm also kind of involved in some way in a in a, in a research type of way in in these uh in these scenes and um, getting closer, like also hopefully to the point where I can uh, possibly profit from from it, like profit in the sense of um, benefiting or like living in some way in that world and being less dependent on um, the kind of systems that I have uh, around me uh, right now, which yeah. are based on um, the kind of existing institutions of uh, the Dutch society. So in that sense, the the kind of thing that uh, that the story is about is also in some strange way, part of my actual life. So in, in summary, you're already working on bringing your own ambitopia to this world by trying to yeah, use new technologies. Yes, yeah. yeah. Cool, that's cool. What do you think, Erik? Uh, do you uh, prefer to live in the embodied ambitopias in the, in the Zoe Network universe? Mm, maybe, I think, because I haven't experienced all 16 of them yet. <laughs> um, and I, th I think there could be something in there that that would maybe suit me. Yeah. But I think it's indeed maybe less about either there or here uh, and more about where the worlds meet 
and kind of what can I take from that? Yeah, really beautifully said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks. Agreed. Also. <laughs> So we're, uh, our 15 minutes are over, I'm just looking over, is there someone who would like to comment uh, on what's being said? Not really. That's cool, yeah. It was a yeah. Oh! I don't have anything to add. Okay. I thought <laughs> that was incredibly interesting. Well, I had one, one little thing of course. Um, that I think is, uh, is also nice when it comes to collaborative world building, mm -hmm. that in some way um, the collaboration with Eric and with From Then to Here, um, the world building of Joe Network uh, is kind of a fractal. You know, we, we also had this whole notion already um, of having this sort of structure um, where you can map different alternatives in different directions and, and, and sort of navigate between them. And then this thing became one world in even like a larger sort of superstructure of Eric's exhibition in which he had the kind of same <laughs> shape um, also instantiated. And I think that's uh, uh, yeah, a very, very nice thing that, that fitted really well. Thank you. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much. Yes. Yeah, Kumbi, let's move on to you. I already heard you. Um, Hi. Hello. <laughs> We're um, moving on to the second artwork. It's called Living Doesn't Mean You're Alive. It was made by Kumurai Makumbe. Uh, it already existed beforehand. But maybe before we start talking about your work, would you like to tell us something about your practice, Kumbi? Oh, my practice. Okay. Um, so my practice is kind of based on explorations um, around blackness and the language that surrounds it in terms of trying to um, interrogate it and try to understand what it is and kind of um, open up its definitions and then just try and find ways of implementing those in a helpful and inclusive um, and expansive way. And through these like interrogations, I've managed to kind of get to a point of world building myself in terms of creating or kind of like doing these interrogations, trying to find languages that are more inclusive. Because I feel like in my practice at the beginning, there was a lot of definitions around blackness, which I found quite exclusionary. So in terms of finding um, new ways of conceptualizing blackness, then building walls around those conceptualizations and creating languages to communicate that. And um, my practice is now very much based on um, kind of trying to implement these new um, conceptualizations of blackness, also normalizing them, and kind of trying to understand what the possibilities are through the implementations of these new definitions of blackness. Um, and now it's just starting to interrogate with futurity, it's dealing with queerness, transness, um, also to do with um, diasporic yearning and this condition which I'm currently um, it's one of my pets at the moment, which I call in between this. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, when it comes to collaborative world planning, because you're also creating worlds yourself, and you were uh, just saying that uh, yeah, your worlds are about inclusion, I was wondering, is that uh, um, is uh, collaborative world building, um, uh, or is inclusion should inclusion be the center point of collaborative world building? Is that uh, um, yeah, I think so. I think um, in my practice, I take a very specific approach. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether <laughs> um, it's the correct approach, but I think it's just um, something that comes from me as an individual and the person that's doing throughout the world. Is that um, I don't like concluding on things. Um, I've never liked the, what's it called? The 
kind of like authority that you kind of assume when you take a decision like that. And even if you are correct, I think like within like um, specific discourses and also within knowledge production, you kind of have to conclude in order for that to then also be able to be used. But I like to do this thing where I propose alternatives. Mm-hmm. Um, within my practice, I, um, I'm constantly bringing new ideas. I never like usually stick with one thing and then keep it going. Um, usually with each work that I make, I bring something new. It's another proposal. It's a new notion for something. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's essentially an invitation to kind of take that upon yourself and then for you to then also then do the work to kind of help build a better world, whatever that may be. So don't even want to conclude on that as it could take any shape or form. But I think my work are usually, um, I think suggestions are too, is too passive, but I think um, they're like, invitation to participate in something larger. It's like an invitation to do the work, to be able to do the work. So I think it's collaborative in that sense, in the sense that um, it's asking you um, to be involved within making of a new world, because it's not necessarily about um, someone imposing a new world order and then everyone having to align themselves with it. But I think it's a moment of um, everyone having to get together and collaboratively make that work. Everyone's doing the work. Um, It's Yeah, I think also uh, when we look at the film you've presented at this exhibition about always like very softly exploring this alternative. Uh, for me, it was also your film was really interesting because uh, uh, from one trip to the other trip, this was really like almost felt like a therapy session because it was so beautiful and, <laughs> and felt like I was also taking along on this uh, almost like an explorative journey. Um, Well, well, can, can you maybe describe your film to us? Like, what did we see? Yeah, so um, it's quite it's an interesting one. Um, I have this. It's like it's something I'm trying to work on myself, but I have this issue of trying to cram too much into one work. Apparently, this is an issue that a lot of people do. It, but um, I basically this work is a continuation from a previous work of mine called "It Was a Mix of Things." Um, which dealt with a um, a individual becoming an informal, which is a digital entity um, that exists on the internet, decentralized. Think of it like a consciousness being uploaded onto the internet. So they're going through this process of becoming an informal. It's very transhumanistic. And um, the work was them going through the internet to kind of be able to like um, kind of Um, emancipate themselves from the body and kind of um, expand upon the cognitive um, capabilities so that they can be able to um, think more, achieve more, and be able to conceptualize um, a world that isn't limited by our humanness. And maybe then we may be able to um, solve some of the things that are going on in the world today. Not to oversimplify it, but that was um, a simple way to describe it. But um, this newer kind of deals with after that character has gone through that process and has become an intimate, they're now actually beginning to miss the physicality of their body and they're now questioning um, whether was it the body itself that um, made it not nice to be a human or was it the experience of inhabiting a body within the world in which it existed within. And so the work focuses on different aspects of physicality um, and each space um, really delved into these um, specific aspects emotionally and really just trying to, um, I don't know how to explain it, but just trying to capture the essences of these specific um, 
of these specific feelings. And so the first room, the first space deals with pain. Um, the second room de- deals with very like a specific physicality in terms of like, and this is kind of you feel during sex or um, like things through like proximity and heat and touch. And then the fourth room deals with um, kind of just like destruction um, and how destruction and creation kind of go hand in hand. Is very much influenced um, alchemy. And then the last room just deals with hope and the fact that um, hope is something that's really required for futurity. And it is supposed to be a journey. It's this character's like thought process. It's kind of like in their mind, it's just like thought processes. It's figments of their imagination. It's like it's um, manifestations of their emotions, of their feelings. And I just wanted it to be a work that is quite theoretical, um, like behind all the visuals, but it's like on the surface, it's just very beautiful, very calm, very emotive. And just quite visually interesting, and um, I think it was a nice approach. I really like the work. Talking about your visuals um, in this film, uh, I think when you talk about a really disembodied experience, we, we mostly saw colors, uh, kind of like almost mm-hmm. like this uh, 3D-like animation, colors revolving around it. Uh, thought it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, really, uh, yeah. Uh, nails it when when it comes to yeah ec- the explorative uh, also like the transhumanness. Um, uh, th- mm-hmm. I I heard there that you had some uh, conceptual reasons behind the colors. Uh, do you have? Um, can you explain to me uh, wh- why did you choose them? Um, how did you choose them? It was very. Um, I can't explain it. Um, the colors are an interesting one because, like, I actually had a lot of questions about them. And I'm not going to lie, it was quite subconscious. I think I created all the forms and then I added all the, most of the colors afterwards. Um, and I think I just did it naturally, but I did have a very specific relationship to color when I started working on this. Um, I was researching a lot, actually, on a few abstract expressionist painters. At the time, I was really, um, I was looking at Jackson Pollock, I was looking at Rothko. Um, and also at the time, I was also very much looking to James Terrell, who's an abstract expressionist. But, oh, yeah. Um, I was very drawn to his work. And um, I would say I was really interested in this idea of um, just trying to give visuals to emotions and just working with those. And I think... Um, Part of it was subconscious, but part of it was wanting to like get some of those clothes that I felt aligned with those emotions and then push them to the extremes at times. So sometimes you do get muted colors. Sometimes you get very strong, harsh colors. I like the con- um, I like the contrast. And also, because I wanted to be kind of dreamlike, I did um, sometimes get these very unnatural color combinations and very transient and very... um. Just very bold colors. Um, but I think I was also very much obsessed with um, James Terrell. And especially a lot of his works deal with light and color and kind of how they work spatially. And because I wanted the work to be a journey, I was really interested in traveling through colors and allowing gradients um, to be um, a way to um, kind of in, like initiate thoughts around movement. And so within each space, you are going through these tunnels of color that then lead you to another space. And I like the transitions. And I've always, like, 
within my practice, I have this thing about in between us at the moment and with gradients. I was one. I have this thing like if you have a gradient from white to black. At what point, if you start from the white side and go towards the black, at what point does it become black? But also, it goes through different. Um, it goes through di- like you can actually label the colors differently as a string from white to black. That like part of it will go gray. Um, and so, I'm just really wondered by these distinctions. I think the line, the edges, or the distinctions between them get blurred. And I like that movement and the kind of things changing, which are very important to the work as well. Oh, I think that's really interesting. A good question as well. Like, when does it become black? Uh, do you also think it, uh, because you were talking about like the comparison between creation and destruction, do you think it's also more of a spectrum or are they more like two sides on a coin? Um, I don't think I can answer that, but I am very aware that sometimes things have to be destroyed so that something new can take over. And I think around the time, I think I was thinking about this work a lot throughout the, um, the pandemic. Well, the first lockdown um, of the pandemic. And um, so it's obviously with everything else going on in the space at the time, I think the conversation surrounding um, prison reform was really like, it wasn't starting, but it really kind of reached a, like, a really key point in a way that it hadn't before within my specific lifetime, in my opinion. Um, and there was a lot of things about um, the abolishing of the prison industrial complex mm. and then some people wanting to fix it. And for me, it's one of the things where, like, maybe it can't be fixed, like something actually needs, like, I think it would need to be destroyed, abolished, and then something new takes its place. And so it was kind of surrounding that, but also just in general. And I think within alchemy, you have this thing of, um, what's it called? Uh, I can't remember the name. Like, is it the rule of equivalence or something? But the same must be there before as there is after of an equation or from um, an alchemical equation. And so I'm really fascinated that the same thing has to be there both at the beginning and the end, just in a different configuration. So mm. sometimes things have to be destroyed for something new to be able to then take its place. And also within that space, which is the first space within the world, is that um, you see these objects kind of disintegrating and then the debris kind of leading to another structure that's been forming. So it was kind of to deal with that kind of process. Oh, that's super nice. Yeah, thank you. We're also, uh, again, already running out of time. Uh, I, th- I thought we're, uh, what's uh, interesting, there's a question for Eric actually, uh, because you really like to compare uh, embodied ambitopias. Uh, and um, and this work, living doesn't mean your life to each other, because they, they kind of display alternative modes of being. You said to me, uh, almost as if they're the two two different ways of translating uh, the whole idea of like exploring alternatives. Yeah, I think there so those are the only two uh, other works that already existed before the exhibition, mm-hmm. um, and I think the reason why they work so well alongside each other is that uh, embodied. Uh, and Betopias is a very, in in a sense, it's quite figurative. So you can really, you can sit there, you can really kind of understand and imagine what it's like to be inside that world. And kind of, you can, kind of knowing their practice a little bit, it, I also understand these small, small seeds of development that are happening right now and kind of how they're being amplified and explored inside that film. So I think that's a very specific, like that's a, that's one of the ways to explore futurity or kind of uh, shape something like that, where I think uh, Kumi's work is really beautiful for the sense of 
kind of really playing with that vagueness of existing in a certain way and and it's a, a maybe a lot less or it feels in a in the first watch a lot less analytic maybe and i think i think one of the the, the nicest compliments uh, a visitor gave was that it, that he only he watched all the films in the exhibition space and only at the end he realized that the films were so different from each other. <laughs> so that one film was like 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 a feature kind of film version and one was an ex like more abstract color scheme shapes kind of thing and he didn't really realize that uh, until at the end he was like, Oh wait, this is they're so so different but they feel so in tune with each other and I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. I thought the same about it. It was really nice. Um, I'm so sorry, Kumbi, we have to move on. But thank you so much. And also thank you so much for talking about your really beautiful film. Um, thank you. Yeah, uh, Kumbi stays on the line, I hope. <laughs> so <laughs> if you want to comment on something else, you're absolutely welcome to. Um, but we're moving on to queer mercury, also an alchemy term. Yeah. But this uh, also a slight, slight undertone, I think, of the entire exhibition, but we can talk about that later. Um, this is, Eric called me, uh, this is Eric's baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was your film? Can, we, can you describe it to me? Yeah, Queer Mercury is a, it's a small documentary. It's also my first documentary ever made. Um, about uh, the ballroom scene mm-hmm. or ballroom culture and not specifically only about that but it, the film is one of the ways that I've started to explore uh, the concept of queer futurity it's a term that was coined by uh, Jose Esteban Munoz in uh, his book Cruising Utopia it's also where the title from the exhibition kind of comes from um, and what I find interesting is in this work, what I try to do is I try to explore um, this kind of queer futurity, which in his terms are is a potentiality for another here and now, and that by kind of in certain kind of uh, activistic and perfor- performativity in queer spaces, there's a certain kind of utopian pulse embedded inside it because it's kind of saying that in the way the present is existing, it's not enough. And we kind of need to move beyond the present for that. But we're moving beyond the present, not by kind of exploring a utopia or situating a, a setting that might exist at some point. Instead of that, it's already happening. And it's already happening in a very small scale. And I think that's something that I really see see in Ballroom. So the it's a three-channel installation in which uh, material from the Utopia Bowl, which was one of uh, was a bowl event here in Rotterdam in September, uh, is combined with interview settings with people that talk about kind of one of the aspects uh, for me about queer futurity is how it's ever changing and how it's always kind of transform transforming. And these people talk about how the scene tries to move beyond gender binaries within ballroom. I guess that's that's kind of what it does. <laughs> You have a brief summary of ballroom. What do you do at a bull- ballroom event? Yeah, you do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of things happening. A ballroom originated in the 70s uh, in New York. It's a space created by um, 
black and pe black people, people of color, uh, mainly uh, transgender women who started this scene. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of came from posing, so kind of posing like you're in front of a magazine and turning that kind of into a performance. Uh, that's kind of very, very briefly how it started, but there's a lot more to elaborate on that. Uh, but that evolved into events or evenings in which different groups of people kind of compete against each other in the best way to present themselves or the best way to present themselves or of features of themselves that are maybe less, um, what's the word? Cheered for outside on the street, but are actually celebrated. Am, ce and more yeah. celebra celebrated, more amplified on that stage. Yeah. So people are, are celebrating, people are dancing, people are uh, performing themselves. And and especially categories are very important within ballroom. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So categories, they uh, there's different categories like folk femme or old way or new way or certain kind of performances, and they all have a very specific way or of how you're supposed to move or how you're supposed to present yourself. So that's, I think there's a category for everyone in a certain way. Um, but it's also, like that's what the, the work talks about. It's very gendered in certain ways because it's about presenting yourself in the most feminine way or the most masculine way. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where those questions arose of if, if you're non-binary, then what category suits you? Because what's, what's the best way to how would you like to present yourself without feeling so uh, boxed into a certain kind of... Like, that's the whole thing. You don't want to be categorized, in a way. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was really interesting. I think it's interesting what you're saying is that y you're saying that uh, there's a category for everybody, but then there's also this problem that there <laughs> isn't. Yeah, and that's what the film is about. Yeah, I think it's even though uh, there is one for everybody... There are still these challenges, and I think that's what what the scene is doing is it's ever changing because it keeps looking for how to open up that space while while keeping traditions alive yeah. that are very important for for how ballroom started in the first place. Yeah, and then uh, there's these three speakers in your film. I believe they're all ballroom competitors, participants. Yeah, and uh, they all have to do something with this this new category or like the, the exploration within these new categories? Uh. Yeah, they're all, uh, they all participated during the Utopia Bowl, so I wanted to interview people that would be present there. Yeah. They're all, uh, they all live in Rotterdam as well. Um, and they indeed all either have experience or researched or uh, yeah, talk about this concept of how to include non-binary categories in ballroom or wha how can we open up that kind of space. Yeah. So it was for me also just a way to learn a lot more about this scene that I'm kind of also new to, so that was really nice. Yeah. Did you participate yourself as well? No. <laughs> you were mostly filming uh, that yeah. night. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still quite uh, a folk baby, so maybe in a year or so, or in two or someday. Interesting, yeah. Do you already have a category for yourself in mind? Uh, no. Mm -hmm, interesting. Um, yeah, the um, uh, here it's mostly about queer futurity. Uh, I think it's really interesting. Wh what you're already saying is that it's already happening. It's not about the future thing. Uh, we're already trying to explore together how we should shape that together. Yeah, I think um, yeah, it's from that's for me an, a really interesting way of exploring, like compared to other works that I've made before, in which you're kind of creating like a fictional version of yeah. something that already exists and you kind of have to shape that story. This is a lot more about 
not something that's happening in some kind of alternative future, but something that's happening every single day, everywhere. But yeah. it's just something we don't always get to see or we don't always get to experience and we don't get to see the small or slow changes that are hopefully slowly improving society standards. Yeah, it's also, uh, before the exhibition, I was quite unfamiliar with the term collaborative role building, but uh, I thought the, this, uh, yeah, showing the ballroom scene, or at least also showing the ballroom scene when they're tackling such a design question almost, um, I thought it was such a great example. Um, also because it felt very democratic. Everyone was like, okay, we're stuck with this challenge. Let's try to like come up with a solution together. Let's try to shape it. And uh, is this for you also, would you consider it like collaborative world building? Um, in a sense, definitely. I think it's not so much about, hey, let's sit down and talk about how we're shaping this per se, but it's more about by already being there and celebrating this version of yourself and by uh, dressing up for certain you know dressing up for certain categories and th certain themes that are existing within different bulls you are that is a world that yeah. is collaboratively shaped because it doesn't exist without the other people if you're performing and there's no one to watch then there's no one to watch you know and if there if you're performing there's no jury or there's no one performing so in that sense it is a kind of collaborative world building but maybe more subconsciously I guess also here, like inclusivity is uh, almost center point. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. just with uh, what also what Kumbi said earlier. Uh, I think that that's super nice. Um, yeah, and also, oh yeah, the, I thought it was also a funny question. Uh, I mean, it's called the Utopia Ball, uh, but we're here uh, exploring alternative topias and topias. Yes. Um, is this, could, would you consider it an utopia or how would you imagine your own utopia or is there, is there actually one? Mm, I think I wouldn't consider it a utopia because I think by stating a utopia you're showing that it's not possible to exist. But I think it's utopian in the sense of that it's moving towards a utopia uh, within the present that is existing and therefore possible. I think it's a, quite an important nuance. Um, what was the rest of the question? Um, uh, I think how to imagine an utopia because I believe in the utopian ball are also categories or they're more of uh, themes you have to build around and then people have to imagine costumes and choreographies based on utopian themes. Yes, uh, yeah, that was kind of yeah. it was the co-aligning of my research and the utopia ball that was going to happen that, uh, that made me... Uh, make this documentary basically yeah. so within the categories there's different themes that all exist around utopia so it's something like I don't know peace patrol or like imagine 2060 and there's no war anymore but then what does the police or something look like mm -hmm. or what will aliens look like in space or any kind of utopia sci-fi like trashless world kind of thing and I think that's really nice because it really by changing yourself or like uh, creating a character for that category and then performing that character as well it is really a way of kind of embodied utopian like utopia i guess on stage on stage yeah sweet <laughs> <laughs> actually i had a question for amelia as well but amelia moved to the window <laughs> hello uh because you did the camera work for this right 
<laughs> How was your experience? Um, about the entire Utopia Ball, or yeah, um, I felt very honored to be uh, able to be part of the of the space, or and I felt um, so much energy, so, um, so a feeling that I didn't feel before. <laughs> Um, and um, while filming, while listening also to, to what people were saying, uh, I had small epiphanies. So it was just this kind of looking from the side and kind of letting the experience flow by. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, Eric told me uh, what to capture in the Utopia Ball. Um, the most important are those moments of condensed energy uh, when yeah, so I, I was trying to capture those moments. Uh, when What is the, the, the gesture when people... Uh, yeah, there's not really a name for it, I think. Okay. But it is, yeah, it is about these moments where everyone in this space kind of moves together and kind of almost instinctively reacts to like the performance. Um, hyping up. Yeah, like hyping up, but in a very majestic way. Majestic way uh, and... Like as a wave, like its own entity. Yeah. The, the whole crowd moves. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Thank you. All right. Uh, do you want to add something yourself, uh, Eric? Um, I don't know. I think, yeah, f for me it's a really, it's, it's my baby. <laughs> That's how I call it. Yeah. Um, not only because it's my first time doing a film like this, but also because it's only the start of... Uh, an exploration for me that I am just really excited for to keep exploring, I mm -hmm. guess. So both uh, in a broader sense, uh, what queer futurity could look like or what it looks like already uh, and what that means for me. Um, but also because it's been such a nice way for me to get more, e even like learn more about the ballroom scene. And I think that's, uh, yeah, I'm just really excited for everything that's gonna hopefully come after this. Sweet. Come after this. Uh, let's move on to your <laughs> next work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how to wake up the ghosts? Yes. Are you ready? Uh, I don't know, but let's see. <laughs> Would you like to have a small break? Um, no, I think we can. Uh, we can continue. Okay, let's go. Let me see what the time is. Amazing. Uh, how to wake up the ghosts? It's uh, the fourth corner in your exhibition. There was a work in every corner, and this was not a film. It was actually also a film. It was also a bit of an installation. Uh, tell me, what do we see? Yeah, yeah. I guess it's. Uh, I describe it as a film installation. Mm -hmm. um, what you see is uh, a coral-like entity uh, filled with water and the water is moving mm -hmm. and if you look inside the creature you um, see animations you see shapes so you see a, a coral reef that's continuously slowly transforming and changing uh, while you're listening to a voice that talks about their existence and their I guess existential questions about what it means to be alive for them um, I think it's kind of what you see mm -hmm. yeah that's what you see and the center point of 
the like the, the main character in the story in the installation is not human or transhuman, but it's about coral. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the entity uh, is a coral reef, mm-hmm. uh, which already makes it uh, a plural entity, mm-hmm. like an ecosystem with one voice. And it's also not just a coral reef, but it's kind of this. It's an imagined coral reef uh, that exists out of technology. So the whole project kind of came about from research into how, I guess, how technology mediates our perception of nature. And that kind of got me into a part of the web um, that talks about or that kind of explores different ways to preserve coral reefs. And one of those ways is by 3D printing structures for coral to grow on and so kind of what I'm imagining with this work is a society or a future uh, in which the natural coral has unfortunately died and the only things that remain at the bottom of the ocean are all of these human printed structures um, these coral like structures and they kind of in this work they become alive and so they are there kind of on this ocean graveyard <laughs> that sounds kind of intense. Mm-hmm. This ocean graveyard, and they're kind of thinking about, okay, well, I, I was here and I was made by someone, and I was here to prevent something from happening, and it happens anyway. And I, what does it mean for me to live, live here? And am I real? Am I not real? Like, what does it mean to be me in a way? I think that's yeah. what the work does. In in what way does it relate to collaborative world building? Um. I think for me, uh, first of all, it's, it was also, again, a collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. So um, the visuals are made in collaboration with Nadia Piet, and the uh, text that you hear is written in collaboration with Lorena. Um, but also, in this case, I collaborated with uh, non-human entities, I guess. So the voice of the choral uh, is so partially written by us, but it's also partially uh, generated by AI systems. The, the voice or the text? The v- uh, the voice, the text. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's clear. It's like, what's the difference? <laughs> no, yeah. So the text it's mm-hmm. it's uh, composed by GPT two models. So we train two models on different perspectives on technology, ecology, uh, existence at large. I guess. Um, so that was one of the ways to kind of also try to open up that my own perspective of what could what could the coral say yeah if it if it would tell me something well, what was the data based on for the training model it was based on um, i think it's a per so there were two models and mm-hmm. each one was trained on about five texts by Donna Haraway Timothy Morton um all of the Bruno Latour all of the peop- all of these people that kind of in a different way, speculate, yeah, philosophers, yeah. yeah, like that, that explore uh, alternative ways of seeing ecology and and how we could. Ooh, what is happening? We're still alive. Another disaster. <laughs> um, yeah, on, on on different ways of how we can interact with ecology or, yeah. or what that could mean for for the future. And so those two voices in this system are kind of have a different idea about this. Yeah. And then the visuals as well are uh, generated 
so Nadia and I worked together with an AI system again to kind of imagine what would it look like to be a coral that exists in this future. Yeah. So I think that's, that's why it's a collaborative world building for me. Yeah, so basically all the, uh, the corals we see, so the, the coral structure, but also the corals in the film, they're all basically human tech made. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. the the structure itself, the physical part of the work, is also three D printed. So it's yeah. something I've I made myself first, and then I scanned and then printed at large. Um, but it's kind of the whole the whole work is one work. So it's not really you've got the object and then the film, mm -hmm. but the film and the object, I think through the water as well, kind of become one. They become one. Yeah. And also the text, I, th I thought it was quite beautiful. I was wondering <laughs> if you still wanted to uh, maybe uh, perform a small paragraph from your mm. text. I forgot about that question, uh -huh. <laughs> but I can see if I have the text somewhere. Okay, maybe like a really small part. Um, are we real? If what we have come to be is a replacement of what is no longer there. We're making sense of being nothingness. The ground of reality no natural in the sense of a state of being as consistency over magnified the original. Being nothing has nothing to do with being. Thank you so much. Ether Axis. Eric, this is uh, where all the works come together. Yeah, <laughs> it was a gigantic table in the middle of the exhibition. It was beautiful with like this orange bright plexiglass with this intricate map on top of it. What's up? Yeah, what's up? Uh, I think so. This work really uh, kind of fully coalides with the whole development of the exhibition as one piece or as one world. And also, what I think, uh, what I really like about it is that everyone. Uh, collaborated on it so either gave advice or helped make it or so it's a really big collaborative effort um, it's a interactive piece so it kind of started uh, with a joint quest of at first liminal vision and me to kind of create a work that could help reflect on these uh, on like value paradigms so kind of create a way that while playing a game or while like exploring a map or by doing something that you are actually exploring an axis, an axis of your own thinking, I guess, without really realizing what it is so that the game would help you as a visitor understand yourself better. And maybe in this case, or in, especially within the exhibition space, um, it kind of transformed into an object or like a way to really connect the different worlds together as one as one thing, so the each work has a certain kind of let's say vibe and symbol and energy, which then comes comes back on the axis of the the piece in the middle. So it's really if you're sitting at this table, you're really kind of having this bird's view perspective on top, like over all the different worlds that you've just seen so far, um, and then. We brought a whole group of new people in to uh, actually, from the start already, kind of think about how can we make this interactive in different ways and how can we give this kind of experience to uh, visitors, but also how can this 
relic in a way also live on and continue to exist outside of the, the specific uh, context of this exhibition. So tell me what your process was, because then, so there were uh, four works in every corner for film installations, and they were all put in this axis, and then there was this table, and then you asked Federico to further conceptualize it, or how, how, did, how did the rest of collaboration work? I think the nice thing about collaboration sometimes is that it's very, very fluid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's not so much about one person taking on a specific role in this case, but already quite early from the start, it wasn't just Liminal Vision and me, but also Luisa Federico and Camilo. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it has just been an ongoing series of tryouts in how to transform these, these different works uh, into something symbolic maybe and also how how can we help the player navigate that and I think that's kind of where Th this was your design question I guess so yeah, yeah. like yeah I get yes then <laughs> no, I'll immediately move on to Federico Federico how did it all start so um, all the Dramaturgy, let's say that. Let's talk about dramaturgy of the axes of the words that are they've been realized from uh, the icons. Mm, everything started with just uh, looking at my tattoos, literally, uh, because I just uh, for alchemic tattoos, and uh, I was thinking about uh, well, okay, alchemy. When I was like 18, 19, I, it was a wow, magnificent. But now with a bit more knowledge, I, I know a bit more and. Alchemy is a very um, binary um, discipline, so there is always the sun and the moon, the masculine, the feminine, and so on. So I thought that it could be a nice starting point to to reflect on, like, okay, maybe we can embrace the, the aesthetic of alchemy, we can embrace some concept of alchemy, but we can just uh, transform it. So. Um, we have certain idea about uh, queer futurity, world building. So, since alchemy is, a very, is very related with world building and future building, we can embrace the best part of alchemy, but uh, we can add our part that we prefer to modify. Was uh, alchemy uh, inspired by Kumbi's work, or was it just a happy coincidence? Uh, it was a happy coincidence. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. and and then uh, since uh, uh, I'm not a, the graphic designer of the situation but he's the magnificent Camilo mm -hmm. uh, we talked it together about okay how can we um, come out with uh, four different or at least uh, modified uh, uh, icons and then we started to do a little research um, and uh, basically we um, we linked each work to uh, most of them are a real existing alchemic uh, concept or icons for metals, and then we started to recreate a dramaturgy to add a, a new layer or to remove layers from alchemy. Yeah, so you set the base for language, and then Camilo, you made the visual language. Yes, yes. I did the, yeah, it was basically really interesting collaboration because, as Eric already said, it's really fluid. So like by trying out different um, ways to subvert these alchemy reasons to the symbols. Uh, yeah, we, we, uh, we made this whole new uh, representation of some symbols using like new ones. So 
we also like made a new uh, new grids for each uh, symbols uh, all the symbols like the alchemy symbols were living in this like Euclidean grid so we thought like yeah maybe we can create new grids that are non-Euclidean and what does that mean and how uh, how this can look like and and it was a really really interesting like process for me like because in a way I'm like as a visual artist I'm really interested uh, usually to make connections between things um, I'm kind of having this as a really kind of horizontal axis in my practice that I'm like trying to connect things and trying to make connections so this was the opportunity to yeah like make connections between artworks uh, using uh, using this idea of the of the subvert uh, of the subversion how do you say that like of subver subverting alchemy mm -hmm. yeah like uh, connect like uh, different yeah artworks as I was saying so it was really really nice like to have this opportunity just for the listener what is an uh, Euclidean grids yeah the Euclidean grids are like the the ones that are represented by two planes like the X and Y mm -hmm. and then um, all the shapes that you can create with this are like the circle the triangle uh, the rectangle and all the all these planes are basically yeah that's an euclidean geometry yeah you you, you made them fluid right i, I remember seeing the sketches was really interesting yeah it was so what like an evolution exactly uh, they they mostly look like uh, 3d uh, mesh mesh meshes yeah yeah and then the you 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 translated that to a map as well the map basically representing the four so yeah that was like basically the process to create each uh, like symbol itself because each world is represented in a system of symbols not just one but like multiple it was another idea like yeah. because when you have a non-euclidean grid then you can all the you can you can see the the two D representation of the symbol through different angles, and also it can like inhabit different uh, parts of the symbol. So yeah, I basically create a really kind of huge um, representation of each um, world within a symbol. Mm -hmm. And then the idea was like in the ether axis part was creating a. a, a kind of like what we called a game board in which like all the symbols are going to be displayed in different spaces. Yeah. So that was like the next part of it in which uh, uh, all the, the the game board has four different spaces, as I said, and there were uh, spaces in between in which like the symbols also uh, co-live and, and counter in, in like as a way of bridges and yeah, it was a really, really interesting process. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah. What What were the the four endpoints in the end, the four worlds? Did they uh, so the axis has two endpoints, right? So yeah, <coughs> it changes in every setting. So in this ah, exhibition, okay. yeah, the four endpoints were the worlds? are the four yeah. worlds. So the four works, and this transforms because it's kind of the idea is that this object or this this being. Um, just suddenly pops up somewhere, and this act because it's an axis in a way, the axis can always change. So it's not so much specifically about these like video works inside the space, but it's more about how can you explore an axis and how can this be a method mm -hmm. of uh, reflection. And so this also 
transformed uh, a month later into a new axis. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because uh, let's move on to that. Uh, it translated or it, 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 it evolved a month later because the entire board went to Overkill Festival. And Overkill Festival was, I believe, at the end of November. And there it was turned into, I would say, a city game. But it was more than that. Um, and Louisa played a big part in this. Uh, so <laughs> I can imagine uh, you had a board, you had a board game, but there were no rules yet. How did you figure that out? It must be a challenge. Um, well, it was um, it was an interesting um, challenge because um, actually we were working on the uh, game logic and on the visuals uh, together for a long process. Actually, like it initiated from the world building of Liminal Vision because they uh, had this idea of the game board as um, representing something that's happening in this liminal space where decisions are being made. Uh, which have consequences on the real world. And um, that was really interesting because I'm really interested in game mechanics and uh, usually I haven't done a lot of research into game boards. Like usually like I'm interested into um, like escape games or like role-playing games or um, like platforms and that kind of stuff. So I... Geocaching. Geocaching, exactly, like location-based games. So for me, that was like a whole different um, world to enter. And that was really interesting, like the process also um, kind of like following that process of um, uh, Victor and Emilia and Eric and then also Camilo and uh, Federico, like trying to figure out how to make this um, game board something playable but at the same time it was supposed to be like a bit more of a reflection or um, an exploration so it can be called a game but it's also like um, it was supposed to be more like a tarot reading or something like that so um, um, I came into this project also with the goal of translating um, like topics and mechanics of that game board then later on to a location-based game which would take place at the Overkill Festival so um, what was really interesting for me was then, of course, that the game board represents uh, two axes. Mm -hmm. And um, like also from previous projects that we did, like we were working a lot with um, playing with giving people coordinates and then uh, players have to go into the city and find um, something that is uh, hidden in that location to get further. So by like having this game board, which also somehow from the world building of liminal vision then would like rep represent reality that was really, really valuable to me as a starting point. So uh, I was then um, also looking at the game board as like the surrounding area of, um, of where the game board is situated, which would then be a sick house in Enschede where the Overkill Festival took place. So um, the strategy was then to try to imagine that the different fields of the game would correspond to different locations. But um, since the idea of the game board was that it shifts meaning in different contexts, um, all of a sudden, of course, there were not the, um, the artworks around in that exhibition uh, since it's been, like, the game board has been moved to mm -hmm. another exhibition and there the surroundings were also like the city. So... Um, we were then challenged to come up with uh, new meanings for the different worlds. And um, 
yeah, since we were like quite challenged with time, we decided to also go back to um, the original meanings of the alchemy symbols because they were still integrated in the design of the game board and try to come up with like potential alternate realities from there. And um, it was a really interesting process to work together also on the storytelling together with Federico because he was doing a lot of work uh, research on um, wireless technology and yeah. by moving uh, by making people move through the city we were using an app so we could combine the storytelling of the game board to um, actually the methods which was like solving puzzles with wireless technology maybe yes I would love to hear more about that Yeah, um, I have a huge interest on wireless technology, but anyway, it could super fit into the game because it's called Ether Axis. Mm -hmm. And uh, according to also the alchemic tradition, again, uh, all the waves, or even our voice, but even the, the photons from the sun, they are uh, moving through this uh, dimension called the Ether. And there are a lot of stories behind it in the tradition, but also in a scientific uh, tradition, <laughs> it, it, even if uh, it was never been uh, fully, mm, no, never completely um, accepted as theory, but uh, it's got a lot of uh, um, meat under, under its name of the eater. Yeah. Um, so um, if we were thinking about the axis, uh, this is, a, again, a two-dimensional representation, but uh, we were thinking to something more complex, but of course only to imagine. So to imagine uh, um, our reality as a donut, like mm -hmm. a ring, mm -hmm. and then the four different realities as um, other donuts that uh, um, intersect our reality. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and when uh, there is like a, sync uh, a point when everything is synced, there uh, basically you can mm, you can uh, enter in communication with the different words to the eater because there are like some parallel uh, stuff that's yeah. going on, let's say. Mirrored in some sort of way. Yeah, with a lot of fantasy. Yeah. So, and uh, those days uh, at the festival, basically the Overkill Festival, the Sick House was exactly the middle point of everything. And so when people um, went around the city after that and uh, unblocked the different uh, communication, they came to. They came back to the sea cows, and then the the, the magic happened. So, mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, for this part, uh, we I can also. Ah, I would love to hear some more about the technologies you've used. It was quite yeah. complex. I, I I mean, I've played it. It was really interesting. The app you made looked beautiful. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, something that is always in my uh, in my practice is to try to use uh, technology, but not only technology, but let's talk about technology in not the standardized way, or at least uh, think about technology not uh, as a universal team, but as a multitude. Um, so the Bluetooth, for instance, it can be also thought something more than only the Bluetooth. So uh, the frequencies are just like, uh, up, it's a protocol, so you can decide also to change the protocol. So um, in the storyline, uh, the, our human Bluetooth uh, would be uh, a set of um, frequency that could communicate also to mushroom, to the, all the fun fungi uh, realm, also the gyroscope uh, to use it as to create a kind of <coughs> uh, 
a body language instead of uh, use it as a just for the map uh, and the GPS instead of use it as a um, yeah pervasive almost uh, yeah. thing uh, maybe something like yeah to 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 use it as a fully element in the storyline instead yeah. of just a pervasive element. I think it's interesting also because it, it reflects again on the film from Liminal Vision is that they also use body movements combined with wireless technology and that it all kind of comes together here. Maybe let's move on to the magic part. Uh, we're again a little bit running out of time, but um, it's interesting because then after the, the, the wireless technology experience through the city, we come back and what happens? Um, yeah, so um, basically um, there were uh, two performers from Queer Arcana, uh, Sasahara and Derek Over, and uh, we invited them in to kind of like perform characters from the ether, which we came up uh, as like the main concept that people would like travel through the ether. And um, Sasa was um, doing the introduction and um, kind of putting people on their way and then when people would come back they would meet uh, Derek in character as a fungi mastermind <laughs> um, sitting at the game table and um, as people were playing they actually made a log of um, how they reacted to different scenarios that were presented to them at the different locations and that log was uh, logged in the app and then when people would come to the game table, um, basically they were seeing um, all of the different worlds then again like interconnected and um, Dak was helping them kind of like understanding where they are positioned on the game board as a group. And the topic was um, also focused around like how they are adapting to change as a collective. So, um, um, there was there was bridge cards which were also connected with the locations and um, then basically there was like a path laid out and there were questions asked like how did you react to the scenario and then kind of like going deeper in like how do you adapt to change is there anything changing right now in your life and um, Derek interpreted the different um, axes of the game board then as like how are you um, are you more like dealing with um, difficult questions as a collective or more as an individual and that's how um, they then positioned the, the players as a collective and in the end they uh, closed up by like putting their hands together and there was like this uh, last um, tone which was like a, a reaction from the ether on their journey and then they were closed off. Kind of place them within the axis and uh, Yeah exactly that they kind of like lock in their yeah. journey in the end. Yeah. Thank you. What's next for the, the big board game? Are we going to see more uh, worlds on the axis? Well, actually, I think I can invite Liminal Vision to the table to uh, say a little bit about that, because uh, as we've been developing this piece, it's something for, from then to here, but, and for Overkill, it's also been kind of been readapted in a new setting. I don't know if you guys want to talk a little bit about that. In brief, in brief, it would be... Very briefly, uh, to new aesthetic. <laughs> Wait, maybe we can get Sorry? to microphone yeah, first. Can, yeah. can you repeat the question, uh, Doris? <laughs> yes, what's next for the big board game? What's All next right. for Aether Access? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, we are currently um, building upon uh, this game board um, to serve as the, the, 
Wait, let, let, let's start again from this. Victor, can you? My, my brain is doing a blackout. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, basically, um, the, the notion of this kind of board game, uh, we also already had in mind for the Joe Network world building as a, as a storytelling tool. And um, we are, like, right now, um, using it for the first time for a short film um, that Emilia can uh, uh, tell more about. It's called Scent of Time. Yeah, uh, so basically the whole film happens in the subconscious of a character called V. Uh, it's a kind of coming-of-age story from before she's born until the age of 13. Um, and we explore it as a, through dance so, uh, and on the game board. So it will be five by five meters. Um, and there in different phases, so the, the three worlds in focus are located on that game board and she relates to them physically by moving on the board yeah. and also you can see depending of where she is how the way she moves changes and how she starts to question some certain things um, so yeah that's the, the summary and also um, the same uh, board like sort of represented through uh, a line that's also uh, designed by uh, by Camilo Garcia um, is uh, a floor piece that she dances on as well as uh, an incense trail clock Mm. So maybe to summarize what is an incense clock, um, it's based on uh, incense trails that burn and they take a specific time to burn, sometimes for several weeks, uh, and it's an alternative way to keep time or be aware of time, uh, and sometimes they also change the fragrance, so it's something more ambient that shifts in your surroundings yeah. that makes you aware of the passing. Uh, and we have it in this fictional piece as the symbol of a whole life. Uh, so in the beginning, one instance trail is ending, finishing, and the main character prepares a new one, and there she begins from the beginning. Lovely. Well, my digital clock says it's time to say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> goodbye. I want to uh, thank everyone for today. First of all, I want to thank Time is a New Space for hosting us today. I want to thank Rod Kapje for making the podcast possible. And thank you to my guests, Erik Peters, uh, yeah, Liminal Vision, Victor and Emilia, Kumbh Rama Kumbhe, Camilo Garcia, Federico Pony, or Federico Pony, excuse me, and Luisa Teichman. Thank you for listening to Roodkapje Radio, the podcast on art, music, research, hamburgers, and all else that moves young creatives to the world. Broadcasting from the heart of Rotterdam. Curious for more? Check our website and socials to stay up to date on new releases. Hope you tune in next time. <laughs>